Affirmative. That was definitely an e-ticket. I can't believe all the new gadgets they've got now. For a while, we didn't even have a house phone, not to mention laser discs, high-def TV. You are listening to The Great Big Beautiful Podcast. This week on the show... And I really like the creative challenge of doing something independent, because I, I know what waste is. I've seen that in the studio structure, you know, how much money goes out the door from, you know, executives that have a daughter that just say, you know, my daughter is really into skateboards. We should put a skateboard in the film. <laughs> yeah. And you're reworking a sequence that you've worked on for six months just because her yeah. daughter thought skateboards would be cool or funny. Episode 17 starts now. Here are your hosts, Jamie Green and Justin Connors. Brand new intro, Jamie. What do you think? I love it. How much do we have to pay for that? Because that's that sounds like a million bucks right there. <laughs> it was uh, it was a lot of work, and something that's cool about it is I love that I found the the e ticket referenced in the NASA the astronaut. I'm not sure what her name was, but she actually said that. She said that like uh, from space. Yeah, back to the the guy on the control board. <laughs> so, do you know when that when that was? Um, I, it's on the NASA website. I'm not really sure. Yeah, that's pretty good. Like that, that's a, that's a pretty good find right there. Yeah. Bravo, I bravo sir. It. My yeah. hat's off to you. Bravo to me. <laughs> um, so welcome to the podcast, everybody. Uh, tonight we have, uh, another interview. We're becoming known for interviews, aren't we? I, I think we are, but you know what? That, that keeps them coming back, hopefully, because people <laughs> yeah. don't care about what we have to say every no. week. We're nobody. Exactly. We're just Justin and Jamie. The only time they tune into us is if we're being controversial and we don't want to do that every week. <laughs> well, we could, but eventually we just start making stuff up. <laughs> so, Jamie, why don't you introduce our wonderful guest tonight? Yeah, um, I, I don't know where to begin. This is um, since we started um, having guests on as uh, for the show. There have been a few people that I know I really wanted to have on. And I am an unabashed Mulan fan. Um you know, from the late '90s, it, that that era. You know, people have called it the second golden age of Disney. Um, you know, in Aladdin and Little Mermaid and and um, Beauty and the Beast and The Lion King and all Pocahontas, they all came out. Um, Mulan came out in '98, and it's probably um, my favorite film of that era, um, more so than all the others that typically make people's favorite lists. Um, but tonight we've got the co-director of Mulan. Tony Bancroft, um, and I just couldn't be happier. This is fantastic. He um, he started off um, with Disney um, as an assistant animator. He started off on one of the Roger Rabbit shorts and Rescuers Down Under, went on to animate Cogsworth and Beauty and the Beast and Iago from Aladdin, and then he got bumped up to supervising animator. He did Pumbaa from The Lion King. He did Kronk uh, in Emperor's New Groove. And then uh, just about five years after he started, he was tapped to co-direct Mulan with Barry Cook. Um, and I, I'm just super excited. All right, Tony. So thank you so much for joining us this week. Um, I'm so excited about this. We've got, I've got a lot of questions, so I hope you're ready. <laughs> oh, man, I'm just going to give you yes or no answers. It's going to be the most boring interview ever. <laughs> It'll also be the fastest and that's fine with me. <laughs> um, well, you know, we, we were, we were thinking about how to start off and, you know, most interviews usually start off with like, yeah, so tell us how you began or tell us how you began as an animator. Uh, we thought we'd throw you a little bit of a curveball, uh, Justin. Yeah. <laughs> okay. okay, so recently on our podcast, we've been talking a lot 
uh, about the new uh, trend Disney seems to be announcing the live action remakes of animated classics. We just wanted to get your take on that. What do you think about that? Okay. Especially since especially since Mulan is one is one of the yeah. uh, the ones they announced as live yeah. action. Are you pre- are we are we prepping or did we start already? Oh, oh we started. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so excited to start! I can't wait, man. <laughs> Small talk and stuff. Um, you know what? Um, what do I think? What do I think about those things? Those things are crazy, right? Um, you know what? I, nothing surprised me when it comes to Disney. I left Disney just so you guys know. 15 years ago, I left in 2000, so I've been a non-Disney employee now longer than I actually worked there, which is weird because uh, <laughs> so much of my roots and how I started, uh, you know, I just think of myself as a Disney guy, I guess. But, um, you know, I also was on the inside and been on the outside so long now that, um, you know, like I said, nothing nothing surprised me. They're a corporation, you know. They have, they got to make their status quo. They got to make their bucks. They got to please their not only their audience, but more importantly, their board um, and the shareholders that are, um, are you guys shareholders by any chance? No, <laughs> no. Uh, no, I'm not. Then I can say anything about the shareholders. You can say anything you want. Yes, guys. <laughs> they just want, want, want. But anyway, uh, they, <laughs> the, you know, the, the movies are really uh, uh, taking old products and re-spinning them. And in some ways I actually kind of like that. Um, I like that they're, I like it when they take it in a new direction. I got to say like, um, a lot of people would probably disagree with me, but I liked Maleficent in that um, at least they tried to reinvent the wheel a little bit. I saw Cinderella recently, um, and I guess my opinion was that it was it was well done, it was charming, but it had pretty much the same charm and appeal that the first one did because the story was so similar. And I don't feel like they – I almost feel like why, why do it if you're not going to try and breathe some new fresh perspective or life into it? Um, then really why do it? Just re-release the animated film, you know, for goodness right. sake. Right. Yeah, I think we had pretty much the same take on Cinderella. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, she was gorgeous. I love the actress. The, you know, yeah. Um, it, was, it, was a, it was a beautiful movie to watch, but yeah, I kind of, I walked away from it just thinking like, why? In 2015, why did we remake this movie to be so similar to the movie that was made so beautifully so many yeah. years ago? Yeah, come on, right? Well, exactly. Come on. Jamie, Jamie, that's the reason that they're going to do uh, Dumbo. Tim Burton's going to do it. It's just for you, so it's going to be different. <laughs> <laughs> and that could be, I don't know. Yeah, I heard that announcement. I was like, Tim Burton doing Dumbo? What the heck? Um, but I, I'm actually kind of excited when I hear about people like Tim Burton getting involved with things, only because he does have such a mixed and skewed version of reality in the world and storytelling yeah. that I think he could he could take that somewhere new and unique that would really explore a different avenue in the you know who the character of Dumbo is and that whole story uh, you know and and, it, and he would do it in a in a way that you know wouldn't take away from the original it'd just be totally different because the original is charming it's really charming but I can't imagine uh, Tim Burton doing such a charming little wonderful story like <laughs> He's going to bend it and twist it and sort of make it creepy, probably. Probably come away with something that they were not planning to have. But, you know, when you hire Tim Burton to direct a movie, you kind of have to know what you're going to get back. Yeah, you're going into it with eyes wide open, hopefully. Exactly. <laughs> As um, for the Mulan thing, uh, you know, you guys asked me about how I feel about it because they announced that Mulan was going to be coming to a live-action version. 
And um, I guess I have the same feeling as I do with any of them, even though Mulan is a very personal uh, story for me and, um, you know, obviously has a personal connection to me. Um, it's funny because on Facebook, it was uh, April Fool's Day, they had just announced that uh, Mulan, I'm backing up a little bit, they, actually, they had actually just announced a week before April Fool's Day that Mulan was going to be doing the live action version. And then on April Fool's Day, I kind of used that with all my, uh, my the fans that I have uh, linked to me on, on uh, Facebook. My brother and I, my twin brother Tom and I have a, a fan page called the Bancroft Brothers. And I posted something on there for all of our uh, fans saying, oh, yeah, by the way, I just found out. I'm totally excited that Disney <laughs> called me and they want myself and Barry Cook and the original producer to be involved in the new retelling of the live action version of Mulan. And um, they really do care. They want to get it right. So they're coming to us to be consultants on it. Maybe. That is such, such a cruel joke. <laughs> I know. And I thought it was pretty obvious. I did a real tongue in cheek. And um, and, and almost 100% of the people, it was actually pretty split, but like 50% of the people were like, ah, April Fool's, I get it. And they were thinking about what day it was. And the other half or more were like, oh, really? I think that's terrific. I'm excited <laughs> to be involved and let us know any details and show us pictures. And I'm like, okay, guys, come on. <laughs> <laughs> I really think Disney cares what the original directors think of their live conversions. Well, that was, my, that was my question. Do you think that you're going to be, you or Barry are going to be involved at all? Like, are they going to, like, you no. know, even, no. even, even just like, Oh, we're gonna call you a consultant <laughs> and bring you on set, or not on set, but bring you in to you know check out some what the the other people are doing. So I mean, no, I, if I showed up on set in any way, shape, or form, I just happened to be having lunch on the studio and showed up, they would kick <laughs> me off just like they would you. Don't worry, <laughs> I would get the boot by secure. They'd be like Tony, who, what? Oh, you worked on the original? Isn't that nice? <laughs> isn't that isn't that sweet? Are you good in the car now? <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Um, well, since we are talking about Mulan, let's just let's just get this out of the way because I got a whole bunch of questions about Mulan, um, and then we can move off to other stuff. Um, but I know that you came to the project relatively late late in the process, whereas the you know Barry Cook, the other director, was attached for almost from the beginning. So did that present a lot of challenges for you, or did it like how did that work out when you came on and the creative team was already there? It did. Um, I mean. You know, it's not the best way to come onto a film when you're coming in a little bit late. Uh, I guess there's pros and cons to it. That, you know, and I always see the yin and yang of everything, I guess. Because the pro of it was just that, um, you know, they'd already gone down some avenues that weren't working. Um, and they kind of knew uh, some things. They'd spent a good year. Those are actually a good year that had gone by doing story, uh, story work, script work. They'd gone through a couple writers. They'd done some visual development work and some not very successful, some somewhat successful. So they had already made up their minds a little bit um, about where they wanted to go. But I came on right when they were going into kind of a, a whole new version, a whole new iteration of the story, a whole new direction. So I felt like um, from a positive standpoint that it was a good time because I could really be an influence on where they're heading right then and there um, and not have to, and I didn't have all the, the cobwebs of history of, mm -hmm. oh, well, what about this? Or what if we try this? And I was just seeing it with fresh eyes, which I think was helpful um, to the crew to a certain degree. Uh, but then there was also this feeling, uh, and this is the negative thing that makes it a little more difficult, is that 
there's also that feeling, I think, of the crew that's already been on it for a year where they feel like, oh, man, you know, we're, we're just now going in this new direction and is this new director going to come on and, and mess with it or screw it up? Because they were, you know, they had stepped into this new version already. It wasn't totally just starting. And so I think there was concern about, you know, turning around again. And I think that would have been somewhat demoralizing for the crew at that point. So I came on totally committed and I had a big, I remember it was, we sat down in a conference room and I, at that point it was early enough that the whole crew for Mulan, which was mostly story and visual development people and an art director, Hans Bacher and stuff, and the producer and director were all in this conference room and I just kind of introduced myself and I said, I just want to say up front for, you know, any concerns in the room, I read the treatment, I know where you guys are headed right now with the story, I'm totally on board, I like where this is going. And um, I have no intentions to, like, you know, uh, destroy the ship that's being built right now. So let's go on this journey together. And I think there was a sense of relief um, that, you know, okay, this isn't this isn't going to be that guy that comes in and tries to reinvent right. the wheel all of a sudden. Right. So I guess that begs the question, after a year of development, why did they bring on a co-director? They had been looking for a while, actually. I, um, well, at the time, uh, Disney was very much into all the all the films had um, uh, uh, directing duos at the helm, and it really had to do with um, that. It's such a big thing. It's such a big endeavor to make an animated feature at Disney. There's you know upwards of 300, 400 people when you're at your peak of production that are working under you that um, oftentimes like Mulan, it'll has to do with two separate studios on two different coasts. We did part of this, most of the story in California, all the animation in Florida. And then there was even an animation crew towards the end that came on in California. So we had two different coasts working on it, two different studios. It's just a big undertaking. Um, and so to be able to uh, divvy up the work between two directors, um, certainly at that time was the preferred way that the studio wanted to make it. And also, I think it gave uh, the higher-up execs a certain feeling of, well, there's checks and balances when you have two people at the helm. Right. You know, so you don't, you don't have that one crazy guy that's going, I want to bring in Nazis. What's that? <laughs> Nazis, you know, and go off on the field. That um, would have been amazing, though. <laughs> yeah, and you know, it goes with the war theme, so maybe that's a consideration for a few people or the live-action movie. There you go. We're just giving them ideas all over the place. <clears throat> yeah, be careful because they might just steal them. You should charge them for those. <laughs> so you, you were talking about the story uh, changing uh, throughout it in the direction. I was just wondering how how much insight can you give into how why this story was chosen? For oh, um, yeah, at the time, uh, again, rewind. Historically, at that time, Disney had done a lot of European uh, fairy tales. Um, you, you know, there was Little Mermaid, Hans Christian Andersen. There was Beauty and the Beast, which all took place in kind of this European provincial town, right? Um, Aladdin was uh, Middle East, which was you know definitely different. Um, but they wanted to start tapping into different kinds of stories and and different worlds too, um, and different so different territories and locations was definitely preferred. And they hadn't done anything with Asia. They hadn't done anything with the kinds of culture and uh, storytelling that could come out of Asia. So they started um, way before even Barry and I came onto it, 
the executives were looking around. They had a development team out scouring specifically for an Asian property. And they found it in um, uh, actually a Disney TV animation, I believe it was. They were developing a, a property called China, China Doll or something like that. Um, and it was loosely based on the story of Fa Mulan. Um, and um, somehow Peter Schneider, the president of animation, found out about this project and kind of snatched it away from, I think it was Disney TV or Disney Toon Studios. I think it was Disney TV. Snatched it away from them and said, we'd like to develop this as a feature. And, of course, it all being in-house at Disney, just had to get certain permission and stuff. And um, I think Michael Eisner, who was then, you know, in charge at Disney was more than happy to say, yeah, that would probably make a good feature. And I know we've been looking for that. So go for it. And uh, then it was a children's book that was used as kind of a structure more than anything. Cause if you know anything about the, the story of Mulan and a lot of people don't, so no problem there. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's based on a, a 2000, 3000 year old folktale. Nobody knows exactly how old, uh, nobody knows exactly if Mulan existed, if she was real, if she was legendary or whatever. Um, and um, nobody, uh, and it's really only like a page long um, poem really that, that people can cite to the, the original form of it. it was like a very short couple paragraphs story or poem or song that was sung by children. So um, there was a children's book that was made from that by a guy named, Oh, I remember his last name. I forget his first name. Sansusi. Sansusi. Um, and he had a children's book that was fairly popular out at that time based on, you know, the legend of Mulan, Fa Mulan. And that's what Disney actually bought the rights to that. And he got a credit, uh, even though it was really just a starting off point and yeah. it took in a totally new direction. But it had that basic story of Fa Mulan. Um. So my wife is Chinese, and I lived over there for a few years, so I know that the legend and the story is really well known, especially among children. I mean, they learn about it, and it's, it's, it's a folktale. It's, it's a legend that is very well known. Yeah. Um, so did you, I'm sure you did, but I mean, what kind of pressure did you feel to, you know, to get it right and to, to, to do, um, just to do right by the story, you know, and to not offend anybody or to not just take it in a completely different direction? It's huge. Uh, I mean, that was a huge responsibility because we knew that we were we were Westerners that was taking something that we knew was very important to uh, the East, you know, and to China specifically, um, and taking their story. It'd almost be like if you know Paul Bunyan was picked up mm -hmm. Chinese studio and they started making a version of Paul Bunyan, which is you know Americana folklore for us. And uh, but even deeper. I mean, I think Mulan, like you said really goes to the core of the society because it has to do with um, a child's sacrifice for her, for her family and for honor. And so um, teachers and schools and, and, and parents tell it to their kids as a way of um, kind of getting them to understand the responsibility and the importance of family and, and honoring your family and your, your parents and that sort of thing. So it's, it's become a, a real benchmark, like you said, um, and, and I came on, like I said earlier, I came on after the, the Barry and Pam, uh, my director and producing partners, and a whole group had already gone to mainland China. They'd done the whole tour, the research trip, you know. Right. We hear about those, and it was, and I was so bummed because I came <laughs> probably like six months after they got back from the research trip. But in that, they, you know, they told me all the stories, and I saw all the pictures and the research that was done. And 
you know, it was very clear to all of us, even me coming on late, that this was such an important story um, and folktale to the people of China. They heard it all over the place whenever they would bump into people and they were telling them what they were working on. It was always like, so we knew we had that pressure on us. And we also projected kind of fast forward. We projected to our, ourselves that we knew we were going to have a, some kind of premiere in China and would we get stoned to death if we brought a property over there that was, you know, snuffed by the Chinese people? And that was the real litmus, te litmus test for us was, you know, having a premiere in Hong Kong, which we did. Yeah. It, it, I'm, I'm trying to imagine what it must have been like because not only did you have that pressure on because of the story, but it was also, I mean, the film was a lot of firsts. You know, I mean, it was you, you were both first-time directors, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Um, you had a lot of first time, you know, supervising animators for time, first time producer. It was the first film at Disney MGM in Florida. Right. Um, first Asian character, first Asian story. Um, I mean, did that, did that mess with your head at all? Or, or was it just still was like, this is the job we have to get it done? No, because I, I love that sort of thing. I like, I like being the underdog project. I like being the one that, um, I like being involved with those kind of projects because, I, I had with The Lion King, if you've heard the story of The Lion King, um, I was one of those that was on that early on, and I was the supervising animator of Pumbaa, the warthog, and that had that in spades. Even though it was done in the Burbank facility with all the executives right there, there was two projects going on at the same time. It was Pocahontas and Lion King, and the company, the studio, all the executives and everybody felt like Pocahontas was the A film. That was the mm -hmm. A project. And Lion King was the B film that they really didn't believe in. Interesting. Uh, and, and like Mulan, Lion King had first-time directors and heads of departments and young animators, all the supervisors except for maybe Andreas Deja and Ruben Aquino uh, were all first-time supervising animators. So it was down the, just down the line, very similar to what we experienced in Mulan. The benefit I think we had on Mulan was not only were we new and young and green, but we were also in Florida. We were actually, you know, we we're also like, what is it, 3,000 miles away from yeah. main executives, the main studio in Burbank, California, and that gave us a lot of license and freedom. We didn't have anybody looking on over, over our shoulders, and we could get away with more, to tell you the truth. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, was, I was reading... Um, the Art of Mulan, which is just a fabulous book, which I just got because I've been I've been dying to get this book. It's way out of print, but it's it's just a gorgeous book. Um, right. And there's a there's a little like a little bit larger than a thumbnail, but there's a little little um, screen grab and a little caption, um, and it says that you and Barry are in the fireworks scene as attendants at the end of the movie, yeah. um, which I had never seen before. And I watched the movie to actually today with my kids, and I was looking for you specifically. <clears throat> is um, it? Yeah, but jump to our death. That's what we do. So we get scared by Mushu and we jump out of. We jump to our death. Exactly, and you know what's funny is I saw you guys in the tower and I was like, oh, there they are. Oh, there they go. <laughs> that was actually very morbid for a children's movie because you really did just jump to your deaths. I mean, there was no saving you at that point unless you like bounce off the roof or something. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure that was probably. Uh... Chris Sanders' idea at some point. <laughs> <laughs> I had a story on that film, and if there was any kind of sick and twisted idea, it usually came from Chris. <laughs> I think I think Barry and I, you know, felt it was so appropriate, you know, that we 
dove to our desk. It was just kind of was like towards the end of the movie and, <laughs> and in production at the end of the movie, and it just felt you know appropriate. Is, is that something directors do often, putting themselves into the film as cameos, like as a little? I know, I mean, it is somewhat historic. I know uh, uh, Ron and John, you know, Ron Clements and John Musker did that in uh, almost all their films, probably. I think Kirk and Gary as team uh, did that once or twice. It, yeah, I've seen it before, and and we we certainly wanted to jump on the bandwagon. I was honored to be able to say that so, I have a picture. So, who animated you? Uh, that's a, you know what, that's a good question. I remember who did the cleanup and put us on model because there was a model sheet. That's what's in the in the book. <laughs> that's great. <laughs> it was a You're right. That's, it wasn't a screen grab. You're right. It was it was art. Model sheet of us, I yeah. think. Um, Ruben, yeah, Ruben Procopio, who's the head of cleanup, cleaned up that scene. But yeah, man, for the life of me, I, I can't remember who animated it because we were probably like really picky about it. I'm like, <laughs> ah, jiggle on my belly. I don't look. <laughs> yeah. So, I gotta ask. Um, I'm sure. I'm sure you're. You have a you know a special connection to the to the film and to the character. Um, but do you have any sort of feelings at all about the character of Mulan getting lumped in with all the other Disney princesses. Oh, yeah, I think that's totally ridiculous. I Thank you. Say. Thank you. She's <laughs> not a princess. She was never a princess. And, uh, you know, it's, again, I'm not surprised by anything that Disney ever does. Yeah. Because they're a corporation and they want to make money. And it was their way of pleasing uh, an audience group. So they basically made her a princess and put her in with the group so that they had an Asian character in the princess crowd Tatiana is in there and, and you know yeah. trying to fill it out you know and make it as specific you know helpful and specific to every people group there is and I totally get it from a marketing standpoint and all that but it's I think it's cheap I feel like if all of those women were actually in one place at the same time she would be so bored with them like she would just <laughs> she would just knock them all down and, and you know and try to find a better crowd <laughs> yeah right I mean she's uh, she's a strong warrior she's yeah and skill. So uh, she would not be painting her nails like the rest of them. Oh, absolutely not. No, no, no. no. <laughs> uh, one, I think we have one more question here about uh, Mulan before we move on. Uh, how, when you first heard Eddie Murphy doing the same voice he did for Mushu as he did in Shrek, did you have any thoughts about that or do you remember Feel, like hearing about that or seeing it. Oh, <laughs> and, to, and to be clear, it's not really Eddie Murphy doing a voice. It's Eddie Murphy doing yeah, Eddie Murphy. Yes, of course. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know. I, you know, I'm just proud that we discovered Eddie as a voice before DreamWorks did. Um, we cannot <laughs> say that because it seems like so many Shreks that, and a whole generation is common past now that grew up with Shrek that a lot of people think, oh wow, they, you know, Eddie Murphy yeah. did a voice for the first time for DreamWorks. It's like. No, first yeah. he was a shoe, buddy. <laughs> it's on DVD. Go rent it. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was finding the story of finding Eddie Murphy as the voice was uh, an interesting one because it was a real process. Um, you know, uh, it was actually Michael Eisner that suggested him as the voice, and at first we were like, "Whoa, no way! This is crazy!" <laughs> you know, because we here we were like setting out to do. Well, well, to back up a little bit, when when we first started on the film, the studio had just done Pocahontas, and they got kind of lambasted, if you remember, in the press and stuff for not hiring all um, Indian, Native American voices. Yeah. And there was a whole Native American uprising and some 
petitioning and picketing of the film and things like that. It was, I mean, it's a small group, unfortunately, uh, fortunately or unfortunately, and so they weren't hugely hit by that. Pocahontas did what it did, but um, they went into Mulan going, we got to be more careful because there's a lot of Asians in this world, so let's make sure that we kind of put a mandate on us as the directors of going, okay, uh, you guys got to just get Asian. Now, we're not going to say it has to be just Chinese, and if you look at our cast list, they're not all just Chinese, but they they put a mandate on us, you've got to hire only Asian. And that was really difficult. We spent a lot of time, because there's only a handful of very successful, popular Asian actors that even come to mind, and, and they're all pretty much in the movie. Um, and luckily, Joy Luck Club had just come out, and that's how we found Ming-Na Wen. She had a, a real starring role in that. And so she was really like the number one choice and there was nobody underneath her. You know what I mean? It was like yeah. Ming-Na Wen and nobody else. If she said no, <laughs> luckily she didn't know that going into the negotiation of her contract. Uh, but I mean, she was like our, <laughs> like our number one and only choice going into the, uh, casting. Um, but when it came to, you know, Mushu and, and Yao and Grandma and stuff, we had – we had other actors that we had found, and but we always had said, well, Mushu's magical, so we can break our rule. That's the, probably the only character that we can break our role, role, our rule of getting only Asian. And so they allowed us to think outside of that. But we looked at our first approach to Mushu was kind of that street smart, New Yorkish kind of thing, like Billy Crystal was already doing, or like Timon from uh, you know uh, Lion King that kind of a vibe was kind of where we were going at first. And so um, it wasn't until Michael Eisner suggested Eddie Murphy that we were like, whoa, that's totally outside of the scope of what we were thinking of. And all of this like street smart African-American voice sound in this very Chinese world that we're trying to create. And it took us a little while, but the good thing is that Barry Cook and I were huge Eddie Murphy fans. And, I had grown up with, you know, watching Eddie uh, in um, Trading Places and then uh, Beverly Hills Cop, and I loved Beverly Hills Cop. I loved his timing, and I thought, so it didn't take me too long. Actually, I got on board probably first with uh, with the Eddie idea, and then it was like, well, yeah, I mean, it's it makes sense. It's a it's the probably the biggest contrast to these, uh, you know, soft-spoken Asians is this loud, bodacious African-American guy that's, you know, full of energy and cocky and all this kind of stuff. And it'd be a nice, so we, we did warm up to the idea fairly quickly once we, but we did some tests. We did some animation tests with Eddie's voice from other films, Trading Places and Beverly Hills Cop, uh, and particularly Beverly Hills Cop. But, um, and, and we fell in love with it pretty quickly. But there was a time when we asked Eddie, and I'm just talking all over. You guys can jump in if I'm. Oh going. no, this is no. fascinating. Yeah. Um, <laughs> our very first recording session with Eddie, we had it in our mind that we wanted to get that Eddie laugh. That, yeah. Yeah. I can't even do it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> As in Beverly Hills, Hills Cop, and, and you know, and, and so we we had written in there um, some lines, and then it said Mushu laughs. And he did a totally different laugh. That's not Eddie Murphy's laugh. (laughs) Clicking the lower remote control button in the recording and going, you know, in the recording studio, saying, "Uh, Eddie, uh, can we just get a couple more laughs from you? Okay. (laughs) Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. You didn't like the, all right, here's some more. And he would do some more. Totally different. Not the laugh. Not the laugh. Was not giving it to us. And we're like talking, we're in the soundproof 
booth, you know, and he's out there. He can't hear us, and we're talking about going, how are we going to get him to do the – I mean, I mean, come on. He must know that we're looking for the love. love. <laughs> so we finally like, well, we're just going to have to say it. So we're like, get back on the microphone. And, hey, Eddie, um, you know that laugh that you do in like Beverly Hills Pop and stuff? And, and he's like – you know, you know, kind of your laugh. It's really like your signature laugh. We'd love to get Mushu to do that. And um, and to his credit, and I actually think that our choice of trying to get him to do the laugh was probably the worst idea <laughs> that we had in the whole movie. But to his credit, he said, "Oh yeah, yeah, I don't do that anymore, man. I, that that was that was my that was my laugh for that character. That ain't my that ain't me. I'm moving on. That's the past. Because you know he was plagued with people always asking him to do that laugh. That was, was like signature thing. And he's like, Nah, I ain't gonna do that. That ain't happening. <laughs> and he just told to refuse. And we we're like, Ah. <laughs> In retrospect, it was. You know, I think it was a really wise choice because uh, it, it totally would have taken you out of the movie. Yeah, yeah. You know, and uh, although we did ask, um, we did we did pull that with uh, one other. Uh, character actor, and that was George Takei. There was a, at the time he was very popular on the Howard Stern show, and there was a saying, or there was a uh, a saying that he would always say that they would cut in, and they used it as a clip all the time on Howard Stern. It was him going, "Oh my!" Oh my. That's the George Takei line. It's to this That's, day, it still is. See, and it still is. Well, we got him to do that, so we wrote that in for his character. He's the main ancestor. Yeah. In the, in the film. Yeah. And so there is a scene where he says, oh my. <laughs> <laughs> well, that actually makes me think of another question. So since you weren't thinking of Eddie Murphy for that role from the beginning, was Mushu always supposed to be like this really small snake-like lizard-like dragon? Or did he, did you shrink him intentionally? So he's like, he's overcompensating with that voice. No, no, he was always small. He was always yeah. like, kind of the this little guy and pathetic and and really what it you know as it's written in the story that's how it was uh, by the time we started recording and even casting but before that Ed, Mushu before Eddie was involved Mushu used to be a two-headed dragon at one time or even before that he was two dragons called yin and yang and then there was these like you know brother and sister dragons that fought all the time and were bickering all the time um so that was the first iteration of Mushu. And then the second one was it was a two-headed dragon that did the same thing, fought all the time, and had two different voices. Um, and then finally we decided, well, from a story standpoint, um, it's always hard when you have two characters that are arguing and bickering and it's not the main character because then what it made Mulan do is she became reactionary. So there would be these funny scenes of you know, these two bickering dragons, two-headed, uh, two-headed dragon bickering, and, and Mulan was just, what, huh? What? Yeah. You know, and she was just reacting to what the funny skits that they were doing. We thought, we got to kill one of these dragons off so that we can have um, her. Really, it should be, the duo should be her and, and Mushu. Right. And right. she's the straight one, and he's the high-energy, crazy one. And that works so much better once we kill off that other dragon. And then, of course, Quest for Camelot stole the idea uh, about a year later. <laughs> and they had a two-headed dra- two dragon. But right, they tried to steal a lot of our ideas. They didn't steal it. You left it behind because it wasn't as good of an idea. Yeah. So they, took, they took your cast-offs. Yeah. For some reason, they took our bad ideas and made them worse. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> that actually what you were saying uh, – it goes in line. There's a fan. We always open it up for fans to ask questions, and one of them, his name's David, asked, 
um, when you're doing an animation, not necessarily Mulan, but any animation, if the character's voice or the person's actor's voice doesn't match what your vision was for him, have you ever had to recast or do start the voice work over? Is there, you know what I mean? Do you ever have any uh, matching the two? Well, not on Mulan specifically. Well, well, there was that. We actually did have an issue with our grandmother Fa voice, um, and that was back when we were, you know, casting Asian, and we had this actress that we had cast. I won't mention her name, but um, she was half Chinese and half Filipino. It was kind of an odd mix, but she had just enough Chinese in her that they allowed us to to grant. <laughs> she was very quirky. She was very odd. Um, it was something that we kind of liked about her, but once we recorded her, like she was great in the audition. She gave this audition for us, and we just fell in love with it. And we said, that's that's her. She's nutty and crazy, just like we wanted Grandmother Fa to be. But then when we got her into the recording sessions, she was so flat and so not working for the role, and she couldn't take direction very well, so she couldn't improve it. And she didn't really see what we were talking about when we gave her direction anyway. So we had to... We definitely had to recast. So she was one of the okay. – what's the mandate to, to say – we had a screening. That's what I was leading to in, our, in the original story was we had a screening at one point for the executives with, with all Asian actors except for Mushu, and it was flat and lifeless. And there was a lot of the comedy characters that were not playing at all. And so that's when, uh, you know, the executives said, okay – you know, uh, let's get rid of these three actors, these three parts, and recast with just funny American voices or whoever we can find. Let's, yeah. we, the comedy is more important than, the, than actually being Asian at this point, and we're losing the comedy. We're losing the the, the value of, of these characters. They have to be funny. So um, that's when we recast Yao and Grandmother Fa, and um, I forget, there might have been one more. Um, those were the two main ones I know that we talked about up front was that Yao, um, the actor that we had wasn't coming across funny. So we got Harvey Firestein. Harvey Firestein, right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Way off cast. Who <laughs> was funny and great and, and charming too, so he was perfect. And then we got June Foray, you know, the voice yeah. of Rocky the Squirrel to do Grandmother Fa, and she was great. And she's brilliant in absolutely everything that she's ever done. But I think, I mean, that... That grandmother role is just so funny. It is. Yeah. She's just so funny in that in that film. Yeah, um, I've got so many funny stories about her too, but we'll get into that in another podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I I, mean, I love her. She she is legitimately a legend, and I she mean is. like oh oh yeah, and totally. Uh, and she, I know that she was really honored, and which is cool because it's it's humbling for me to see somebody that has her legendary status has done so much has you know been right next to chuck jones and dawes butler and all those great actors mel blank um and yet because it was later in her life and later in her career she was so honored that we asked her to do this part and it's still you know to this day i see her and she's like i you know um grandmother Foz is one of my favorites uh, my characters that i've done i'm th- so thankful she still thanks me to this day for casting her in that role that's hilarious i i heard her i don't remember where it was but i heard her i think it was a podcast and i i for the life of me i can't remember where i can't remember where it was but she still got it you know and i mean i don't know how old she is at this point but she still got it like she's still really funny <laughs> yeah she is she's a she's a she's a, she's a piece of work i love her yeah um 
I have one more question about Mulan before we let her go. Um, I love Mulan, honestly, and I'm not just saying this because you're on the show, but it's honestly one of my favorite films from that era. I, I really do love it. Cool. Um, but I have to be completely honest. There's something that I really don't like, and I'm, I'm wondering how much involvement you guys had or whether it was from above you. Um, the song. I'm sure, we, I'm sure we destroyed it. I'm sure. No, it was, no, no. Yeah. It's it's the song over the end credits. <laughs> yeah. No, was was that a decision that came yeah, down I, that says we need something radio friendly? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And there was a lot of mandates at that time because Disney was going through a change of Howard Ashman had gone gone on. He had died. Um, so there was no Howard Ashman, Alan Macon, who were kind of the golden boys for making all those great princess films and. And Howard was a true genius, and nobody can deny that. Right. And and they were a great team together. But Mulan had this mandate because they didn't know how not to make a Disney musical at the time that it had to be a musical. And Barry and I, you know, I don't tell this to a lot of people. This is just for you guys. <laughs> uh, no, um, but but yeah, we had a mandate to make it a musical, and we never really felt like it needed to be a musical. There's a couple songs. Um, uh, that I think, you know, like when I, when I look at I'll make a man out of you, I do think, boy, how would we have done that montage if it wasn't yeah. for that song? That song really plays well as a montage. It really helps the ability to show that whole training sequence that Mulan has to go to in a very concise and fun way. Um, you know, there's certain songs like that where you're like, okay, yeah, that totally works. And I don't know how we would have done it, but for the most part, we were telling us a very dramatic emotional story about a girl's journey um to prove herself and and a war and really on the back you know the back burner of a whole war film too and it really didn't need to be a musical and it wasn't really screaming out to be a musical we just really hard to make that work i think and we were you know we had uh you know uh two guys that were put together that had never worked together that were writing the music um, who did a great job, and I, you know, I, I love those guys, David Zippel, and um, God, now I'm drawing a blank. God, crap. <laughs> David Zippel and Matthew Wilder, um, who and David did the, the lyrics, and Matthew did the music. Uh, never worked together though, and um, you know, so they had to develop a chemistry, and they had to, you know, kind of find a vision for the music and where it should go, and that took a lot, you know, a lot of finding to do. But yeah to your question about the end song, what tree your heart, which was 98 degrees. It was hot yeah. back then. Yeah. And, uh, and Stevie wonder put together, which is like the oddest the dream team <laughs> duos put together ever in, in all music history, I think. And yeah, the studio is like, we got to have our over the credits song that we can get on the radio and hopefully it'll be a top 10 thing and it'll help marketing. That was definitely their agenda when it came to that. James Jay like complains, but he probably has it on his iPod. So, yeah. <laughs> but, but, um, like, but Beauty, but Beauty and the Beast had like the other movies had just pop versions of the main song. And yeah. I mean, you know, there was the Christina Aguilera, right? Christina Aguilera did Reflection. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. I'm just wondering, like, why that wasn't the main credit song? Like, where Beauty and the Beast did that, I thought. Well, they wanted something up, you know, because uh, they felt like the Christina Aguilera song, because it's Mulan's reflection song, it's meant to be a down song. It's kind of a, a down, pretty, okay. you know, lyrical song, whereas they wanted something popish that would really play and play large over the radio airwaves. Um, yeah. so that's how True to Your Heart came to be. 
Yeah. On, on the upside, I think you gave the highlight of 98 Degrees' his career right there. There. Boom. <laughs> boom. Just done. Little, yeah, yeah. little speed bump. Bing. <laughs> now, and then it fell apart. <laughs> um, okay. Moving off of Mulan. So I know um, we'll, we'll sort of move it off because we're, we're – uh, Barry. You and Barry both had uh, prior experience um, before you started on Mulan with the Roger Rabbit shorts. Oh, yeah. Um, so I got to ask, are we ever going to see those on Blu-ray? <laughs> um, I know it's not up to you, but you've got to have some Blu-ray yeah, yeah, There's a DVD, right, that has all the Roger Rabbit shorts on it. But are they on the movie? There, there's a DVD they made, a compilation DVD. Not a Blu-ray, but um, years ago there was a DVD that came out. Yeah, I don't know if that's still in print, though. Yeah. I, I, I should probably check. <laughs> but, but, yeah, you should do your research before you ask that kind of question. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> but blue, I specifically asked about Blu-ray, and I know they're not on Blu-ray. Yeah, they're not on Blu-ray. They're not, and, I, and they, you know, my guess is they probably never will be. But who knows? You know, if there's a buck to be made, Disney will put it out. Oh, I think that there's a lot of nostalgia for Roger Rabbit. Do you? I, I think that I think that there is. Yeah. I know there's still people that would like to see a Roger Rabbit feature again, um, but I think that's dead and gone. Well, I mean, he's still in the he's still in Disneyland. Is he? Yeah, yeah, there's the Roger, Roger Roger Rabbit cartoon spin. I mean, he's got a whole ride. Yeah, Toontown. Yeah, there's probably a whole generation of kids growing up going, who's that funny rabbit? Yeah, yeah there probably is. A lot of parents have to explain who he is on the, on the ride. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I didn't know Bugs Bunny had such long ears. <laughs> yeah. Where's Daffy? Where's <laughs> um, let's talk CG for a second. So. Oh. What would you say? I love talking about CG. Oh, awesome. Um, and so I know that, you know, the shift towards CG, which happened a long time ago now, it's not really news, um, but it comes with a lot of pros and cons. Um, but I'm wondering specifically about your take on the trend spe- it's specifically okay. among, I'm just trying to get it out, specifically among Disney films, Disney and Pixar, <laughs> where all the females basically look the same uh-huh. so you got rapunzel and anna and elsa and honey lemon and gogo and i mean they all take away the hair and they've got the same big eyes and small nose and round face and it's very anime inspired but they all look like they could be sisters um it, it, you're nodding in, in, in understanding but i mean is that well, is I've that seen, like, i've seen that on the uh, the internet and i don't know if is there a meme or something where somebody is Probably uh, taking the hair off of all of them, put them next to each other. <laughs> Probably. I haven't seen that, but I have heard people complain about how uh, all the. But you know what? Even in the 2D days, there were people saying that about, oh, Ariel looks like you know Belle, and Belle looks like Jasmine, and I never really saw it to tell you the truth. But people have always said that when it comes to like, because there is a Disney style that yeah. is kind of speaking into all those designs that's kind of on top of it all. And I think that's still picked up on in the CG versions, but um, I don't know. I mean, I don't, I don't know that I would say that Anna looks like um, Rapunzel. I don't know. I'd have to see him next to each other. Whether, whether they look exactly like, I think that they all feel like they could exist in the same universe. Yeah. You know, yeah. Whereas if you saw something like Pocahontas and, and Mulan and Little Mermaid, you, I mean, yeah, they were all hand-drawn animation, but I don't think that you would say that they all looked like they existed in the same plane of existence. You know what I mean? Like, I, I went to see Big Hero 6, and I just loved it. 
But every time I looked at Honey Lemon, I thought that she was Rapunzel. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, and I don't know. I don't know. You know, in CG, they could they could easily adapt models and squash and stretch and change volumes and stuff and reuse polygons and, you know, wireframe meshes and stuff. So maybe there is some truth to that. Uh, but not being on the inside of all that, it's yeah. really hard to say if they do. Yeah. Do you think that we're ever going to see, I don't want to use the word ugly. Do you ever think we're going to see a female who's not traditionally attractive? Oh, uh, <laughs> Whether, I mean, Disney, DreamWorks, anything. I mean, still, no, whatever role that they play, they're still very attractive women. Yeah, I remember going through this issue, uh, you know, the attractive lead character issue on um, Hunchback, because that was a big issue in discussions on the design of the Hunchback of Notre Dame, which obviously he's got to be ugly. Right. And, but they were trying to find, in it, and there was large, just long discussions about this. How do we make this ugly guy still appealing and our main hero? You know, so there was a lot of iterations. I remember seeing early on that James Baxter, who was the supervising animator of Quasimodo, had to go back and forth. And, you know, how much hump on the back or, you know, how much of his teeth is hanging out or, you know, if, if he's got kind of a deformed eye, then the other eye should look, you know, kind of attractive and appealing. And maybe we play the angles more uncertain scenes from that angle that's the more appealing side. There was, there was a lot of discussion about that because I think there is a fear from, and it's not really an executive standpoint, although, you know, the Disney executives are worried about toy sales and other things outside of the, you know, the main issue of the story and the movie. But for the filmmakers, you do want to have, I think there is that feeling that you want to have an appealing main character and the, the visual presentation of that character plays into that. But so does the vocal too. I mean, you want to, uh, that's why the voices tend to be, you know, there's, you don't hear too many main characters that are like, oh, hi guys. <laughs> you know, it all comes back to Roger Rabbit. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> uh, you, don't, you don't really have that. You have, you know, Demi Moore does the voice of with her really sexy voice, you know, <laughs> and that just plays into the part. But it's, but it is about appeal, you know, and 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 it's not really. I wouldn't just put it all on movie makers and animation directors and stuff or character designers. It's it's a larger issue of body image and things like that, that our world is stuck on and yeah. I don't think we'll ever get off of. Yeah. It'd be, I mean, it's weird to say it'd be nice to see like a fat character or somebody who has a different yeah. body image from what we're used, used to seeing. Um, but again, you don't want it to feel like it's, you know, it's been put there just for the sake of having it. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. But I, I feel like it, it's a matter of time. Eventually, we're going to hopefully move away from that. But I think it'll have to be the right story. I mean, I, I would yeah. like to do that, too, to tell you the truth. Like, I, I particularly think an overweight character would be really interesting and, and real, like you said. But it would have to, um, I think, play into the story, too. Um, um, and I'm not sure what that would mean, you know, or what yeah. it would, I'm not going to just make it up here. But I... Um, <laughs> Up until now, like the fat characters, and particularly in Saturday morning cartoons and stuff, or you know, early TV animation, were always the the brunt of the gags. You know, yeah. they were the, the jolly funny ones, like in Fat Albert and stuff like that. Right. right. Yeah, they were they were the joke. It was that you know, ha ha, you're overweight. You know? Right. Exactly. 
So we we were talking about CG a little bit, and I'm just this isn't even a question we had. I'm just curious about your take on it. How where does traditional animators sit now? With do, are they all working as CG artists now, or are they? Is there a, a movement like an underground movement for animators? Or where where do you guys sit now? Do you congregate <laughs> somewhere we don't see you? Or? There's an underground movement towards the employment line. <laughs> right. um, that's that's where they're hanging out these days uh, and bars. Um, but no, um, uh, it's funny because uh, Tom and I uh, just did on our podcast that we do. We just interviewed uh, Eric Goldberg, and Eric is excellent one. episode, by the way. Everybody listening should go listen to it. Oh, okay. yeah, Eric's like a cartoon character in himself. I just love talking to all the voices and stuff. He's so funny. Um, but you know, we did ask that question to Eric too, like, well, you know, what's going on over there? And you know, I, I don't work there. I don't work at Disney. For all those that don't know, I haven't been at Disney since 2000. I left Disney in 2000, so it's been a long time. But I have friends over there still. And um, the friends that I have that are still in 2D, most of them got laid off, just so you know. Um, some of them have adapted into CG. Uh, Alex Cooperschmidt is an old friend of mine that I can think of that jumps to my mind because he's actually thrived in 3D. He's done very well for himself. But people like Dale Bear and Mark Han and Eric uh, Goldberg, there are still some that are there that are real senior 2D animators. And they tend to use them... Um, to do drawovers, like Mark Ken was uh, an animation supervisor, I think that was his title, on um, Big Hero 6. So he would, he didn't do any CG, but he did a lot of drawovers on his Wacom Cintiq over animators. If they came to him and wanted to, they could say, hey, Mark, can you go over my poses or help strengthen? I'm having trouble with this pose or something like that on the CG model. And he would just do a 2D drawing over it on his monitor and say, yeah, give this a try, and they go off and implement it. So um, there's a real use for 2D animators in that, but it's more instructional. It's more helping the next generation of CG animators to push their poses and things that CG animators don't do very well or, or doesn't come as naturally to them to, to really think outside of the box and make more graphic poses and push poses like 2D animators do naturally. Um, and then, then, you know, and then all those guys tend to do... Um, test, test animation. In the beginning of the film, they'll they'll try out character voices, like I was talking about for Mulan. Um, they'll do, you know, oh, the, the directors will say, oh, we want to try out, you know, Ben Stiller as this, this role, so can you do a little test animation? And it's quick and easy for a 2D animator to do that sure. and have fun and try out the model and squash and stretch it, whereas if you tried to do that in CG, it would take, you know, six months to a year just to develop the model and the design and then animate it, you know, and, and yeah. properly rig it and all that kind of stuff. Very time consuming. But a 2D animator can get in there and start testing out designs in 2D very quickly and easily. And that helps influence the CG uh, modelers once they get a hold of it. So that's really what they're doing nowadays. Do you think that, because um, I know that there have been a number of hand-drawn 2D shorts um, and even Disney has, has put a few out. Um, but do you think that we'll ever see? I, I hate to keep bringing back to back to Disney because I know you haven't worked there in so long. But like, do you ever think that like a big studio like DreamWorks or Disney will ever release another traditionally hand drawn feature? Um, you know, up until recently, I would say no, um, and probably absolutely not right after that. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
But recently I have hoped to tell you the truth, and it's because of a podcast that we did with my brother and I did with Brad Bird. Mm-hmm. And if you heard that one, Brad at the end of it um, made a proclamation. We didn't even ask him the question. I was really taken by it that he just kind of offered it up. But he said, I still got an itch for um, that needs scratching for 2D animation, and I, I want to do a 2D animated feature. Now, a guy like Brad Bird can make that happen. Can make it happen. Yeah, it would have to be somebody of that kind of stature, though, and that kind of um, that executives and shareholders and all those that make the, the, the decisions up on high would have to really say, I could see him doing it because we can market that in a certain way. Um, but they would still probably, you know, do it at a very low budget point because it would be risky, even with a big name like Brad Bird a studio would feel like it's a huge risk and they're not about risk. They're, they're trying to make money and um, they want to make sure that whatever they put out there will have a return, a proper return for them. So um, right now the studio executives do not feel like 2d animation is a sure thing. If anything, they feel like it's a huge risk. Um, But maybe somebody like Brad bird um, could possibly bring it back at Disney or Pixar. Yeah. Yeah, that would be a phenomenal thing. Yeah, I, like, I mean, sorry to tell you the truth, I think Pixar would take more of a risk, and I could see Brad doing it at Pixar, a two D animated feature, and which is ironic because we always said when we were two uh, D animators at Disney, we always said, "Yep, Pixar is going to be the end of two D animation for Disney yeah. animation," and they were. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you weren't wrong there. Yeah. So it would be ironic, I think, if uh, Brad Bird brought it back. 2D animation. Yeah, Pixar. yeah it, it would be a brilliant thing to see. I mean, after watching Inside Out, um, I mean, it's like it, it's a return to form for them. And it's, they're not just churning out sequels. And I, I would really love for them to see, see for, for Pixar to return to something like that. And if so they had a, just a brilliant story and they just delivered it in a, two, in a 2D way or, you know, hand-drawn, that would just be phenomenal. It would, wouldn't it? Yeah. Yeah, we already told Brad in our podcast, uh, hey, we're employees number one and two. Ta- sign us up. <laughs> You're first in line. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was recorded, so all the fun. I read that you, um, earlier in your career, before I guess before Mulan, you had always dreamed of being a supervising animator. That's what and you wanted to do. What's and that? And a ballerina. Right. And a ballerina. Right. Um, so have you made both of those things come true? Have you been a ballerina? I did the supervised animator thing. I'm still working on my... Uh, <laughs> still working on the pirouette, right? The pirouette, yeah. That's the thing I'm hurtling over right now. It's like a hurdle. Um, but yeah. What, was, yeah. It tough, was it tough to make the jump? I mean, you were a supervising animator on, you know, you did Pumbaa, you did Kronk, and then you made the jump to directing. So was that a tough jump to make, or was it one that you even wanted to make? Yeah, and actually the order was, um, oh, I totally I totally had the ambition. I was very ambitious, and my brother and I both, we were raised by a mom that was very encouraging of us and um, filled us with this feeling of we can do anything we set our minds to. Yeah. And, to go after what we want and from almost from day one and not to do and but to do it in a humble way not to be cocky or you know feel like we're better than anybody else but to just to work hard and try hard to follow your dreams was always important for us and um, almost from day one I had it in my mind that I wanted to be a director 
I thought, you know, what's the biggest thing? What's the biggest artistic position I can have at this organization? And it was directing an animated feature. And I said, that's what I want to do. And so uh, on top of that, I always wanted to be an animator. So I knew that the first step was, okay, I want to become an animator and then a supervising animator and then, um, and then a director ultimately. And I, I did all those things. Um, uh, uh, I was very blessed. I got to say, I don't, I don't really say that this is me because I do feel like I've been led by a God that loves me and put me in the right place at the right time because um, I don't see how in respect I could have made that happen. I wasn't, I wasn't talented enough in my mind. Oh, Everybody said that, right? But <laughs> that's the humility. Oh, no, <laughs> that's, but it, that's probably why you've made it so far is because you're humble, right? You know, if, if Tom was here, he would agree with me. And so <laughs> Um, I am. No, that's what he would say. Um, but I really do feel that way. And I, I mean, I was privileged and honored to be like the youngest. That when the, when they asked me to direct Mulan, I was the youngest director that I could see in the Disney history books, the youngest director to have that opportunity. Wow. Um, and I did it within five years of starting at the company. And at that time, that was unheard of. Usually 10, 15 years of really sweating and putting in the the time and building up a reputation for, you know, um, having the director's chops. That's what it took. Um, that's why I say I don't, I don't take a lot of credit for it. I really feel like um, God put me in in the, the absolute right opportunity at the right time and created that opportunity for me for um, for whatever reason. But um, the same is true for Lion King uh, becoming a supervising animator. That happened a lot faster, and I. I did not even um, apply for the character of Pumbaa because I didn't think I could get it. I didn't think I was ready for it because Pumbaa and Timon from the get-go were the characters that um, anybody that had, you know, were kind of cast as, as animators a lot of times. And I definitely had the, the, I guess, the street cred coming up with Will Finn as my supervising animator as being good with comedy and having done, you know, uh, before that, Cogsworth the Clock and Yago mm-hmm. and Aladdin. I was known as kind of a comedy guy, so I knew to apply for if I was going to get a bump up, it would be in a comedy character. But having just come off of Aladdin and done Yago, I thought Sazu, that's the character I could get into. That makes the most sense. So I tried to convince the directors to consider me for Sazu because you know it was a walking talking bird character and i just done a walking talking bird character in Yago. i thought you know hey you know who else are they going to have that has more experience than me at the moment exactly so um, hey maybe consider me and then when they <laughs> called me and offered me pumba i was i mean there's there's really only like three moments in my life that i think had uh, or two moments that really had more impact and that was when i got married and that was when i had my kids all three of them separately and then when i got asked to be the supervising animator of pumba those were the those are like the groundbreaking moments of my life and i was so taken aback that i was speechless and i you know it was such i knew in a moment what the opportunity represented for me in my career and if I got it right, which was a huge pressure on my shoulder, <laughs> but I felt almost immediately, but if I got it right and if I pulled this off, I knew that it would open up doors um, that I, I never expected. And, and then on top of that, the fact that something happened with the film that nobody expected, which is that Lion, became, Lion King became the all-time biggest smash hit of an animated feature, um, 
that just added to um, the weight of what happened that I could never have predicted. Yeah, oh, man. <laughs> I'm, I'm I don't have words. That's all, awesome to hear <laughs> hear you talk about that. It's just a every person that creative person that's working towards something, right? They want to get to that point where it's like, you know, I've arrived. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. And the Pumbaa yeah. moment is just like that's everybody's. <laughs> the Pumbaa moment is the moment you want to well, get. Well, I, I mean, that's why it was so seminal. I appreciate you yeah. saying that because that's why it's so – it's still impactful for me when I think right. back to that moment of when I was offered that character. When I was offered that character, it meant more to me than having done the whole character and finished the film. Like that moment is still more important and impactful for me in my uh, my career and who I am as a person, I guess, uh, you know, just – it's just more impactful than anything that came after that. And then of course, becoming an, being asked to direct Mulan uh, was almost just as flabbergasting. But after that Pumbaa experience, it was almost like it still was always going to be second to, right. Oh my gosh, I'm a supervising animator for a feature. I'm, they're giving me my own character and it's, and it's one of the best characters in the film. Now there was, you know, there's always that part of you that goes, yeah, but Timon's funnier, isn't he? he has more. I didn't get Timon, you know. And, uh, and, you know, and then, then you have to hit yourself in the back of the head. Yeah. <laughs> Iago is actually one of my favorite characters of all time, too. So. Oh, really? Yeah, I, I loved him as a kid. I don't. I really. I don't know. I really uh, enjoyed watching him. So. Uh, that that character too is pretty cool to me. <laughs> Who am I kidding? Any character in a, in a feature film is cool to me. <laughs> if I got to do it. <laughs> Are you an animator then? No, no, I wish. <laughs> oh yeah. I uh, I design logos. That's about as close as I get to uh, animating anything. <laughs> Pick up a pencil, buddy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, just he's a photographer though, so he's you've got the eye. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. You got you know what? We all we all have our things, you know, and um, maybe you'll be the Ansel Adams of photography. Yeah. <laughs> Wait a minute. <laughs> <laughs> the only photographer I could think of off the top of my head. I was like, you know. I knew of. Um. So let's 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 talk animal crackers. That's oh what yeah. You were working on now. Um. How long have you been have you have you been working on that? Uh, it's been about a year now. Um. Uh, as I came on to it. Um little over a year now um, and animal crackers really for the last I would say 15 years or so I've been independent I left Disney in 2000 like I was telling you before mm-hmm. and I started my own animation company that I ran for seven years and it was a great opportunity and I don't regret it but financially devast- <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> very difficult and we ended up having to close our doors not having enough funding and stuff and um, it was unfortunate, but, um, and actually it's funny because Tom and I just did a, a podcast that we called failures and I, I, I'm hoping that this podcast will be impactful for artists and, and, and dreamers alike out there because I think it's important to, to not only hear about people's successes, but also things that didn't go exactly how you mm-hmm. expected. So it's the opposite of the Pumbaa story. And I think those are just as important and impactful because it's how you, get up after those moments. And know? we have a lot more of them than we have Pumbaa moments. Yeah. We do. We do. Absolutely. And that's a big part of life is knowing how to keep going and get up and keep going and, um, you know, and not live on your laurels or your one big opportunity and 
try and keep going and, and be impactful in your life and that sort of thing. So having gone through that with Tunacious, my own animation company, um, uh, I went into becoming an independent uh, director. And so I've done a lot of independent animated features. And it's a hard road because if you don't have the resources of a big studio, what happens a lot of times is you'll, you know, everybody starts with a lot of enthusiasm. Yeah, we got the money and we're going and we're making this and you're the director and six months into it an investor drops out or mm. um, three months into it you realize they don't have the money. Uh, they never did and they were lying or whatever and, it, and it's just a very shaky, volatile. It's when you look at it um, in the independent world, it's really amazing that any movies get made because it's, <laughs> so many things have to come together and so many things have to be right. Um, but about, about five years ago, six years ago, when I had my own animation company, I started working with a guy that was a CG animator and illustrator. He created his own graphic novels, just kind of a jack of all trades, a guy named Scott Sava. And he wrote uh, a graphic novel called Animal Crackers that he was selling at Comic-Con and stuff independently. And he said, I, I want to make this into an animated feature. Will you direct this for me? You know, he was not an animation director. And, at, you know, this is like seven years ago. I'm like, yeah, sure, sure. You know what? Go ahead and put my name to it. Uh, when you go out and find, you know, meet investors, you could say I'm attached, but only in, you know, only as a, a possible director. I don't want to say that I'm not going to sign anything that says I am directing it, but, you know, I'm, I'm saying that I'm interested. That's right. I put it so that he did and he went out there and it took him five years but he came back to me um, and a really good friend I've known him for years and said I got the money let's make this movie and it turned out that it was just the absolute right time for me in my career I'd just come off of a project and it didn't go well it was one of those that kind of folded abruptly and I'm like all right let's do it you know <laughs> I'm up for it I got the time right now and let's do it and I've had a ball, I gotta say. I'm working with a, a good friend of mine who I trust and admire. And um, he got all the money up front. Most of it's from Chinese investors who are very trusting and open. And he's got, um, Scott was able to get, you know, final cut and total creative control over it. So it's really just him and me together making this movie, him producing and co-directing with me. And we got a studio in Spain that's doing all the CG animation and they're fabulous they're doing a great job and it reminds me of Lion King it reminds me of Mulan it reminds me of that that underdog project really low budget I can't say that you know we have a huge budget but what that offers up is um, creative challenges and That's I right. think we're we're up for that you know I'm at I'm at that point in my career where I've done all the big budget things and I really like the creative challenge of doing something independent because I, I know what waste is. I've seen that in the studio structure, you know, how much money goes out the door from, you know, executives that have a daughter that just say, you know, my daughter is really into skateboards. We should put a skateboard in the film. <laughs> yeah. And you're reworking a, a sequence that you've worked on for six months just because her yeah. daughter thought skateboards would be cool or funny. Yeah. So the only notes you've got on this film are from the two of you. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we literally are um, making this up as we go and having fun doing it. And we got a we got a great little uh, cast too. We pulled it off. Somehow we convinced all these big actors to join us. <laughs> come on board. We got Sir Ian McKellen as our villain. Wow. He's awesome. And we got um, Danny DeVito doing a comedy role in it. And um, 
John Krasinski and his wife Emily Blunt are doing the main characters. Yeah. We got Gilbert Gottfried uh, coming back doing a comedy character, and Patrick Warburton. Is he a bird? Is he a bird? Oh no no he's a he's a, <laughs> is he a, a stuntman motorcycle. Uh, uh, it, it all takes place in a in a circus. A circus okay. So he's like a a, a motorcycle stuntman driver, um, and he's crazy. So it's perfect for Gilbert. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and Patrick Warburton, who I worked with. Um, oh, yeah. So there's all these voices. There's actually three voices on this film uh, that I've worked with in the past. There's Harvey Firestein is doing a voice in it. Patrick mm-hmm. Warburton is doing a voice, and then Gilbert Godfrey. And then on top of it, you know, we have Sylvester Stallone and Danny DeVito and Serene McKellen and uh, John Krasinski and his wife Emily Blunt. It's it's pretty pretty awesome. A movie with both Gilbert Gottfried and Harvey Firestein. I'm not sure the world is ready. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I know. I'm trying to think. I don't think they have any scenes together, unfortunately. Uh, <laughs> so when can we expect to see uh, to see the movie? Apple Crackers. Um, it should be coming to a theater. We don't have a t- uh, definite release date. It'll probably be late tw- 2016, uh, early 2017. So somewhere awesome. in there. Do you um have you got anything else you're working on? I, I, I was snooping a bit on your IMDB page and it said that yeah. you're also working on Bunyan and Babe. Is that still something that's going on? Yeah, it is, it is. It's uh it's out there and I'm hopeful that it's gonna take off this year. It's something I I actually started on five years ago, again in the independent world. Um and it got it was done by a company called Exodus Film Group, who put out Igor as their first film. It came out years ago. Not a, not a lot of people saw it, unfortunately. So the first film, not doing well, ruined it really for the second film. They needed to use. They took basically some of our budget to try and save that. Uh-huh. And when it failed and didn't make its money back, then our film got canned or put on the shelf for f- over six years. And I didn't think it was going to come back. And I, I thought, well, I've seen the last of that. And um, just this last year, the producers called me up and said, um, we think we got new investors. We want to bring back Bunny and Bay. We want to make this. Will you still be our director on it? So we're talking about um, it coming back and me working on it in some capacity. I'm not sure how. And then, yeah, I have a, a third film that I'm working on right now um, with another group from China. So I have three or four projects that are in various degrees of development right now. Um, but Animal Cracker is the one that's hot in production right now that I'm you know most excited to talk about because it's it's the one that's going to be coming out first but yeah there's a lot of uh, right now is a great time to be in the independent market I gotta say in, in animation there's there seems to be a lot of investors that are willing to take a chance on animation like never before and most of the, the money seems to be coming from overseas um, yeah, I was just gonna ask about that yeah yeah uh, every I mean, between us and, and all those listeners that are listening, uh, probably um, 100% of the films that I'm working on are 100% being funded by, in, by Chinese money right now. Do you think that's the norm? Is that the new normal? It is. I think so, because I know of not only the films that I'm working on, but a lot of other... Ch- for the independent market, I think yeah. that's, that's huge right now. Uh, yeah, I think Chinese investors are looking at the Hollywood model, saying, how do we get into that? How do we learn more about it? And to come in on a lower budget independent animated feature by by a team of uh, Westerners, which tends to be the model right now, hire a bunch of Westerners that know what they're doing, ex-Disney folks or whatever, and we'll fund that. And it's a great way to get into that market and may lead to, 
to more opportunities in the future. So some of the companies that I'm talking about want to start their own animation facilities and do more than one feature. Some are just dabbling their feet in it saying, well, we'll see how this first feature goes and maybe yeah. we'll put into another. Um, but either way, it's an exciting time because for creators like myself, I mean, funding was the number one issue why my my company failed when I did it seven uh, or over eight years ago now. Um, we just could not find we had a lot of great ideas. We wanted to make features, but we could not find the investors to support it. And now it seems like the world has changed and turned around enough that people are willing to put money into animation. So that's exciting. It's going to open up all kinds of opportunities and different kinds of movies too. It seems like it offers you a bit more freedom than you would have from a, a domestic studio also. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Like the thing that's going on right now with Animal Crackers that I described to you where we have, you know, carte blanche control over casting and yeah. um, and the story and the design and the look of it. I have never, ever had that kind of ability to have that kind of freedom. Um, there's always in the corporate structure and the bigger studios, there's always, you know, a, a committee of people that speak into those things and there's pressures on you. Um, because of those committees and because of those people speaking into it. And I have, that's why I'm having such a ball on this, I think, is that it's, that pressure is off me and we're just going, what kind of movie do we want to make? Let's just have fun. Let's just, let's make some yeah. mistakes. Let's get crazy. Yeah. That yeah. sounds brilliant. It, so, it sounds like, it sounds like you're at the place where you need to be right now. It, it sounds like you have the freedom that you want to do the types of stories that you want. And it's, yeah, it, it's, that's brilliant. That's awesome. I really can't complain. Like I said, I like I said before, I just feel blessed, and and I feel like, um, you know, I did go through a time in my career after Disney where I took some uh, chances and some risks, and it did not pay off. It did not go so well for me, especially financially. And we went through some hard times, myself and my family. And I feel like we're coming out of that now, and we're seeing new opportunities on the horizon. And um, it's a happy surprise, I got to say. You know, going through the tough times that we did when you come out on the other side, you appreciate things more. And I'm appreciating my career in animation like never before. That is great to hear. Fantastic. <laughs> fantastic. It, it's fantastic. It's been great. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, yeah. Real, it's really um, it's inspiring to those who are maybe at the beginning of their careers or in, in whatever they're doing, not just animation, or, or maybe experiencing those tough times. You know, they're, they're waiting for that Pumbaa moment to arrive. So it is inspiring to hear from someone like you who's, you know, been through it and come out the other side and, you know, it's, it is very happy with the way that things are turning out after all of those challenges. Well, and I, I kind of say, I mean, I, I'm one that, and again, I think it's just how my, my mom raised Tom and I, my, my family, how we were brought up that we try and always look at the, the positive in life and, you know, the silver lining and, and God's hand in, in our lives. And I, and I, I see a lot of people around me that are my age that don't. And yeah. I, and nothing makes me sadder than hearing, you know, guys that are at where I am in my career and where they are in their career that are just bitter and angry and feel like, you know, life didn't give them what they expected and they were owed more and doggone Disney didn't do this or DreamWorks or Sony and I gave my all and what did they give me and I have no retirement and I'm, you know, um, I can't find work and all this kind of stuff. Well, part of me is like, well, I could see why. Come on, man. Get up off, off the <laughs> yeah. ground and get on the horse again. 
you're not dead, you know, yeah. <laughs> reinvent yourself. And I'm, I'm always a big proponent of that. I know my brother is too. Tom, we talk about that as, you know, the older generation, you just got to always be trying to, it doesn't matter if you're young or old, actually, you got to always be looking at reinventing yourself. The, the world is harsh. Okay. Get over it. But here's, here's the harshness of it. You're, the world is going to say you're only as good as your last film, your last project, your last piece, whatever it is that you do. You're only as good as that last thing. And you got to just get up and go, okay, I'm not going to live on that last thing forever because that's going to have a, a shelf life. And then people are going to go, yeah, yeah, I love that last thing that you did in 1941. <laughs> that was great. I that recently, though. And so you're, you're going to be forgotten because, because you're, you know, trying to look back instead of ahead. So you always got to be looking ahead at going, what is, what is the next thing? And how can I turn this around? And how can I reinvent myself? And, and doggone it, just have fun, yeah. <laughs> you know? Yep. Yeah, it's too it's too easy to uh, to hang on to those regrets and lay blame somewhere else, and it's it's yeah. a little, it's a little bit harder to pick like you were saying to pick yourself up and reinvent sure. and just just keep, get back on that horse, you know. But that's what whatever you're doing, that's what you need to do. My model is Frank and Ollie, to tell you the truth, two of the nine old men from Disney. Um, I love that they had a career that they worked on a bunch of features. And then when they were ready to, they kind of retired, but not totally retired. I mean, they were working all the way to the day they died, doing books or doing lectures around the world and talking about the the gems that they learned during their experience and passing that on. Um, and they did that all the way to the moment that they died, you know. And Joe Grant is another great one, a Disney legend, who um, literally the story I heard is that he died drawing. He died with a pencil <laughs> in his hand. Um, at the drawing board, and that's how they found him. Wow. And I thought, that's a great model, you know. Yeah. Never give up, never surrender, keep going, and and know that you still have value and make yourself valuable in others' eyes. Yeah. It's also important to be to do what you love. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm a big proponent of uh, you're not the – I always tell people you're not stuck in anything. You can – you can get up and go out and do it. You don't have to do the same old thing over and over and over. It's your yeah. life. You know what I mean? I, so many people, it's just, you know, aside from our cover, <laughs> well, you know, Disney, but so many people just think that, you know, they're in this job. That's all they're ever going to be. And they can't like speak. You have to, like you said, reinvent yourself, get up yeah. and go. <laughs> yeah. Well, and never be too afraid to take that leap off the cliff because that's what it takes. Yeah. You know? You got it. You can't be so scared and looking for safety and security of your whole life that you never take that leap, because then you'll live. That's the worst kind of regret is when you get towards the end of your life, mm -hmm. you get older, and you have that regret of, I should have done this. And yeah. I, I want to come to the end of my life and go, man, I had a full life, yeah. and, I, and I saw opportunities and I took them, and I tried to invent others as best I could. Wow, this took a serious turn, didn't it? Very <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> special episode of the podcast. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Life is not something that really should be happening to you. You should be a part of it. Yeah. yeah. So, I think that's a good. Mentioned, you've mentioned it several times, though. But you've got a podcast, The Bancroft Brothers. Um, where can people find that? Where can people um, find out what else you, you've been up to and get in touch with you? Um, well, the podcast is the Bancroft Brothers Animation Podcast, and it's available and sponsored by 
topbyapro.com. That's my brother's company, topbyapro.com. Um, and you can find the podcast there, but we're also on iTunes. So if you like to download podcasts like this one, I'm sure people do, and listen to it on your way to work or while you're working in the background, uh, that's a popular way that people enjoy it, and they download it straight from iTunes. And then you just have to look for Bancroft Brothers and put in a search for that, and you'll find it. Um, and, yeah, I'm, uh, you know, as you guys know, we don't make any money doing these podcasts. They're really kind of a labor of love. We've been fortunate to have a, a sponsor recently, Stuart Ng Books, um, but, you know, that doesn't pay the bills or anything. That's just a little something that we give to our engineer that helps us cut it together, actually. So Tom and I make no money off of it, but it's it's our way of giving back. You know, we want to we want to talk about what we went through and the journeys we we were a part of, and some of those fun stories. And more than that, introduce people to the some of our friends. You know that that we're inspired by. So we we get to be geeks. You know, just like you guys, you know, talking to people that you interview. Tom and I are the biggest geeks also, and we love getting people on onto our show that we've always wanted to talk to or haven't talked to in a long time and, and just talk about the old days or, you know, what they're doing now. I just love that. Yeah. Um, I, I, I don't mean to cut you off, but I just want to give a, a, a shout out to your show because well, I, I first heard about it. Oh, I don't know. A few weeks back. I, I, I'm, I'm late to the, late to the show with that one. Um, right. But uh, I can't remember the first episode I listened to, but I listened to it and I was just so engrossed. Next thing I knew I was like six episodes in. I was just like, <laughs> I, I, was like I just marathoned them. And, and you're, you're right. I mean, it, it, they're not stale interviews. I mean, you guys have on legit legends, animation, you know, gods and, and goddesses. And I mean, like people who have these amazing stories and, and you and Tom are just like, you could tell you're having the time of your life. You know, it's just that you yeah. you love talking to these people and the stories that you guys share is just, it's a great listen. And anybody out there who's listening to this right now, you need to check out the, the Bancroft Brothers Animation Podcast because it's it's phenomenal. So keep listening to this one, right? Yeah, and, yeah. And add to... Subscribe to both, please. Right. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. And, oh, and uh, on Facebook, my brother and I have a fan page called the Bancroft Brothers, so you can find us on... Uh, Facebook also, uh, the Bancroft Brothers uh, page. Um, I'm on Twitter. Um, what's my Twitter handle? Um, You're Pumba, Pumba Guy, guy. One. Yeah. Pumba guy one. Yeah. I'm the only one. Pumba Guy one. <laughs> so people can find me there too. And uh, yeah, I'm just always, I, I love to communicate with the next generation, the fans. And Tom and I speak at schools and stuff. And we're willing to look at opportunities like that. We're, we're at a point where we got to squeeze things into our schedule now, but, um, you know, we look for opportunities like that too. This is great. This has been phenomenal. This has been fantastic. Absolutely. You guys Thank are you. great. This is fun. I'm so glad we were able to work this out. What a, what a fantastic interview uh, with Tony. I had such a great time talking to him, Jamie. Um, just, and it went kind of in a funny direction, but I really enjoyed the ending and just, you know, talking about life and, that's really a cool thing to do on this part. You know, we're talking about geek stuff, but when you can relate it back to something that re that's real and relates to everybody, that's really neat. Yeah, I mean, the tendency is to think of a lot of this stuff as just pop culture or entertainment that's fluff. But, uh, you know, there are real people behind these things who make the things that we love. Um, and uh, they each have fascinating stories to tell. And that's sort of what we're hoping to do here with the show is to have these people who make this stuff on and sort of give the the angle that we don't often get to see. And I, yeah, this is, 
this might be my um, don't tell everybody else, but this might have <laughs> been my favorite episode so far. Well, yeah, and, you know, the moment you find yourself, you're kind of listening to him talk, and and he stops talking, you're just like, I'm still keep, thinking about what keep, he just keep said. Keep talking, please. <laughs> <laughs> So uh, that's it for this week, guys. Thanks for joining us. If you want to catch us on Twitter, you can at the GBB podcast and we're on Facebook at facebook.com slash GBB show. We're always looking for suggestions, tips, uh, anyone you want to see us reach out to. Jamie's the master booker for, for our guests. So <laughs> if there's someone you want to, he's the, yeah, he, he handles that all. So if there's someone you want to hear us interview, um, I mean, it never hurts to ask. <laughs> Absolutely. No, I've been reaching out to some some dream people. So yeah, if you want to hear anybody, if you want us to talk about anything specific, just let us know and um, leave us some reviews on the iTunes. So word of mouth is the best way to get other people to, to listen to the show. And if you don't subscribe, make sure to hit subscribe. We're so happy that we keep seeing we now have stats so we know how many people are listening which is which people. is really neat more than and one are, Yay! yes and there are people listening and so we just thank you for doing that and you know share it with your friends if there's any geek friends share this wonderful thing with them that we do so we can continue to do it so you know it's so much fun and we love uh I, I don't know about jamie but i'm really honored that you know there's people that actually every week click to hear us interview people Absolutely. i mean that blows my mind <laughs> so thank you <laughs> i'm justin once again you can find me at 140 justin c uh life in 140.com and, and jamie. i am jamie i'm at the Roarbots, um pretty much everywhere social and the, the Roarbots.com. perfect and, and, and be sure to always check out geekdad.com thank of you course yeah. of course and jamie's Got some cool news soon. He's going to be going to D. I don't know when's D D twenty three. D twenty three is in August. I will be heading out there. Um, not exactly sure if I'm going to go into all three days yet, but I will be there for at least one of those days. Um, and I'm Perfect. super excited. And we'll be, definitely be devoting a show to that. So stay tuned. Yep. All right. Thanks, guys. Have a good week. Take care. This podcast has been a production of the Geek Dad Podcast Network. If you've enjoyed this content, please consider supporting us at patreon.com slash geekdad.